You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Communicating with our patients is one of the most critical aspects of our profession, yet few of us do it as well as we could. Joining us to discuss the changing nature of patient-doctor communication and other issues is the physician who arguably speaks to more patients per year than almost any other doctor in America, the medical editor of ABC News, author on staff at Massachusetts General Hospital on faculty at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Timothy Johnson. Tim, thanks for coming into the studio My to pleasure, talk man. to me today. I've known you for a long time, admired you from up close as a physician and uh, afar since you've taken up communication in a more public way. I think a lot of people listening are going to wonder what made you transition from taking care of patients to uh, doing communication at the level you do. Well, it's actually quite a story that you could regard, I suppose, as either accident or providence, depending on your point of view. (laughs) But about three weeks before I was to graduate from medical school, spring of 1969, I went down to the student lounge, watched evening news. It was Huntley Brinkley report. And that evening, they carried a report from the AMA in Chicago. They had held a press conference that day to announce their opposition to the proposed appointment of a Dr. John Knowles in Boston as the Under Secretary of Health. They opposed him because he advocated something called universal coverage. And the very next morning, obviously by a coincidence, in my mailbox was a form letter from the AMA inviting me, along with the other about-to-be new doctors, to join. And on pure impulse, I took a pen or a pencil, and I wrote on the form letter something like, if what I saw in the evening news last night is any indication of your position, I do not care to join, thank you, and (laughs) dropped it in the mailbox, never expecting to hear another word, obviously. And to my astonishment, about three weeks later, I got a long personal letter from the head of the AMA saying strange things about this Dr. Knowles. So I was sort of into it. I sent it off to him in Boston and said, you might be interested. We became pen pals, never met. And when I ended up in Boston, we became friends. And when I ended up at the Mass General, we became better friends. And that was at the time he was part of a Harvard group, mostly Harvard people, that took over the operation of the ABC station in Boston in the spring of 1972. And one day in the hospital, he bumped into me. He says, you know, we're starting this new station, and we're going to do this little program for the public on health. We think you he heard me give some talks. He said, you'd make a great host for it. And I'm thinking, what is this all about? But he talked me into trying it, and wow. that's how I got started. What year was that? That was 1972 when I actually went on the air with the new station here in Boston. Wow. That Just for those who are listening, John Knowles was the general director of the... Uh, of the master of the mass at general age 35. Hospital. Brilliant man. Incredible. Interesting man. I mean, the way I look at it, Marty, if I hadn't gone down to watch the news that night, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Well, that's the way life is. Isn't it? Way, isn't, isn't it? it? You were practicing, though, right through this. I mean, yes. For, for I a was, long time, you were still yes, practicing. Yes, emergency medicine. I was trained in internal medicine, but I practiced emergency medicine before it became its own specialty. I helped teach the courses at the Mass General. You worked there in, uh, for E.W. Yeah. Wilkins. Uh, yeah, that's the, absolutely right. The emergency absolutely department. correct. That's what I thought. Yeah. So, I mean, how long were you able to continue practicing and still uh, doing your reporting? <laughs> well, what happened is that over the next few years, they started asking me to do more things at the station. And then when Good Morning America started in 1975, they asked me to join it. So I'd do that in the morning and then go to the hospital for us. They finally, in 1984, 
I gave in to their suggestions uh-huh. that I go full-time with ABC News, and that's when I stopped. I thought I remembered you even doing Nightline a few times. Oh, Isn't yes, I've right? done Nightline. I've done them all over the years. That's I've been I, there a long time. That's what I thought. That's 25 what... years now, full-time. So, And you found it really very rewarding and satisfying to do Well, it. fascinating, absolutely. Uh, privileged to meet very interesting people. I'm privileged to constantly be forced to learn new things, hear about new things. There's really no downside if you don't mind the sort of the crazy world of the media. How do you decide what to talk about? You're not only the person that does the talking. You're not a newsreader. You're the editor, Mm -hmm. right? You figure it out. So how do you decide what's important and what to do? Well, I wish I could tell you I had some kind of scientific method when it came to that, but I really don't. A lot of it is dictated by what's in the news or what's in the journals or what's happening in Washington with health care reform now. So I'd say 50 to 75% of it is pretty much dictated by what people are talking about and interested in. But we do have the opportunity to plan some long-term programs and possibilities, and we do some of that. The people who are listening are mostly people in practice, although I, all sorts of doctors are listening, and uh, communication is a very, very important part of our practice. You, when you come on television, you explain these things in a crystal clear fashion. It's beautifully done. Can doctors do this? Do they have the time to sit with their patients and do that kind of explication, do you think? Well, I think you've hit the huge issue for doctors today in my experience in dialoguing with practicing doctors, which is the time issue. The vast majority of doctors I get a chance to talk to I know personally would like to do that, would like to take the time. They're actually pretty good at it when they have the time, but they feel so rushed and so pressured in the healthcare system or non-system today. So I think that really is the big issue. The only tip I would ever give a doctor, a friend, is pretend like you're talking to your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, whatever the age would be appropriate. I think if you have that kind of a person in mind as you explain things, it helps. Well, when you are uh, writing these pieces for the general public, do you aim for a certain level of sophistication? Do you think I'm talking to a sophisticated but not medically educated person, or how, how do you do that? It depends a little bit on the particular program because they do somewhat reach different audiences. For example, World News Tonight reaches a more sophisticated audience in general than huh. maybe the morning programs. So you sort of have that in the back of your head. But And you presume a high school education, but not much beyond that. You try to keep it very simple because then you can include everybody. And when it comes to medical information, even very sophisticated people may not have much of a base. I'm always impressed with how much you know about the breadth of medicine. And I'm a doctor. I mean, I'm listening to this thing. But, you know, with very little warning, all of a sudden you'll have to talk about the swine flu vaccine or something, right? Yes. A lot of it we have time to do a little preparation for. We happen to now have, in contrast to when I started in 1984, a very sophisticated research operation in our Boston office, Uh an email network of about 8,000 doctors, experts around the world categorized into about 200 subgroups. So within 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, uh, we can get responses on a given question. But there are moments when it's not a matter of 30 minutes, it's a matter of a couple of minutes. If I don't know the subject, obviously I won't do it. I mean, I'm not going to go out and say something that's going to embarrass me or be wrong for the public. But usually the issues that come up very suddenly are at such a basic level that most any physician could handle them. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me is author, teacher, practitioner, and news commentator, Dr. Timothy Johnson, to discuss the changing nature of patient-doctor communication and other issues. One of the things I really wanted to discuss with you is this issue of patients becoming informed about their illnesses through people like you, but also through the Internet and, and other people. Do you think this marks an advance in medicine? Do you think it's better for patients to know 
a little bit more? What's your view? And, You've been and, both a, a practicing doctor and a person uh, communicating. And I've seen an enormous change in the kind and amount of information available to the public during my lifetime. When I first started doing this in the early 1970s, I would say there was too little information that many patients and their families really had a hard time understanding what they were talking about with their doctors or the advice they were getting. Now I've concluded, Marty, and maybe it's just because I'm getting old, that there's too much information in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it confuses both patients and doctors, this outpouring of information. I'm a part of that. I mean, I do try to give good information, understandable information, but there are many sources today that I think are not trustworthy. I think this so-called information highway, the Internet, is littered with a lot of junk on the side. My perspective on it, at least in part, is that it can be quite dangerous. Patients often frighten themselves enormously by looking at the Internet, and they also make their doctors sometimes very, very defensive. They come there and say, well, I think I have a perilymphatic fistula of yeah. the ear or something. <laughs> the doctor said, what the heck is a perilymphatic yeah. fistula? I'm going to have to work that up. And then they have to get a lot of tests, more tests, and more expense. I agree. It, it is a very mixed bag currently, and what I say to patients, to the public, when they ask, where should I go for information, I say, go to trusted sources, names that you can understand and trust. Be very suspicious of a name you don't know or an organization you've never heard of. It's one thing if it's the American Cancer Society. It's another thing if it's a society you've never heard of that happens to have the name cancer in it, but sounds strange. So I think patients need to talk to their doctors about trusted sources, and doctors maybe can guide patients in their area of specialty to trusted sources. What do you think about Wikipedia? Well, as a source for history, I'm not capable of judging, but as you may or may not know, there's apparently going to be a similar related kind of information source for health information. Mm -hmm. And I worry a little about that operation in the arena of medicine where anybody can put out there anything they want, people tend to trust it. I hope it has a very strong editorial component, otherwise I think it could be dangerous. It could. You know, it's funny, I think about it myself. I often use it to look mm. something up. So the other day I was reading about something and I saw Paracelsus and I thought to myself, <laughs> who was Paracelsus? I've forgotten who he was. So of course I Google it. I found a Wikipedia story and I read it and I sort of assume that what I read was correct mm. because it's not my field. How would I know? And I think that's going to be a real problem for health information. It already is in so many sources. So I keep going back to Go to organizations that are valid, that you've heard about, that you know are trustworthy. One of the things about your programs, which I find so wonderful, is that there's enough time given so that you can get some real idea of what's going on. And even as a physician, if you're talking about some subject outside of neurology, I'll learn something by listening to that, whereas much of television and radio as well has devolved into sort of yelling at each other and getting in uh, people who disagree and not letting anybody finish their sentences, it's sort of a hostile environment. Do you notice this change well, I happening? certainly notice it in the arena of politics, as we all do. But I think it's also happening to some degree in the area of health information. That is, there are so many people out there that I, I guess, for lack of a better word, I would call hucksters who are promoting their own product or their own idea, usually with a commercial interest lurking behind their words. And they will get very angry and upset if they're challenged by legitimate medical sources. I've seen that happen on talk shows, and I've been a part of it. And it really astonishes me how people can come on with a clear commercial interest, say things that are absolutely off the wall, and get away with it. Let me ask you a little bit about this health care uh, debate that's going on. To be honest, I was very surprised, shocked, 
after the election, how much trouble Obama is having with this. Are you shocked? Are you surprised that there is this terrible reaction in the public? I have to say absolutely I am because I think everybody knows that we can't go on with what we have now, that we'll break the bank and that it's not sustainable. Even people who are opposed to Obama's plan will admit that we can't just have the status quo. And I thought that the kinds of things he was talking about and has proposed were quite reasonable. Not perfect, but reasonable. So I have been shocked. That's the only honest answer I can give you. Totally shocked in some cases. The level of the debate vis-a-vis -vis what we were talking about just a minute ago is pretty low. This yelling and people, uh, you know, talking about death squads and death committees or death panels or whatever it is, none of this stuff true. It's amazing to me, again, that they can even get away with saying stuff like that. But... What we're seeing now, I think, is going to be a real tension between what I'll call insurance reform, which more or less everybody is for, getting rid of the pre-existing condition clauses, stuff like that, and what I would call true health care reform, which gets at the systemic issues of how do we pay doctors, are we going to continue with fee-for-service, are we going to go more toward outcomes, are we going to have electronic records, how are we going to use comparative data. Unless we change the way we deliver health care, as well as the way we cover it with insurance. It won't be true health care reform, in my judgment. I'd like to thank my guest, on-air commentator and medical editor of ABC News, on staff at Massachusetts General Hospital, on faculty at Harvard Medical School, and a prolific author, Dr. Timothy Johnson. Tim, thanks so much for coming to the studio. My pleasure. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.